following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. The government and the church were combined. So if you had a legal issue, if you had a complaint against someone, somebody had appropriated your land, or there was some case that you wanted to bring for litigation, you would come to this space that they're about to build. The priests served as the judges, the teachers, the worship leaders, the lawyers. So all the law that's laid out here in the Pentateuch is handled by the priests. And it's handled in this location. So what they're building is the government center of Israel. And it's also the worship center. It was all combined. Because God was the king and the priests were his um, lieutenants or whatever you want to call it. They were, they were the ones that were in charge of implementing the legal code as well as the worship system. This tent that they're putting up would also be the only place in the entire globe where God would choose to make his presence visible. He would put his name there. Ezekiel 5.5 talks about God putting Israel in the center of the nations. That's a whole sermon in itself, but just think about that for a minute. That all of God's presence, his his awareness, his revelation of who he is has been placed right here in this location that we're going to describe today. That Moses is assembling. This is where God chooses to put his name. Later in the New Testament, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he says, she brings up a distraction and says, well, the Samaritans worship on Mount Gerizim, the Jews worship in Jerusalem, which is it? You know, Jesus had just told her that she's had five husbands and the one she's living with now is not her husband. She gets nervous, and so she throws out a theological argument to kind of confuse things. And Jesus says at that point that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And there, Jesus is beginning to expand the worship of God to be global, which is what we're doing right now. But up until that point, the worship of Yahweh had been centered in Jerusalem in one location. And this is the beginning of that, where Moses is creating a space where Yahweh, God's presence, is going to be manifested in a, in a visible way with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. The timing of this is also important. This is New Year's Day for the Israelites. On the first day of the first month of the year, build the tabernacle. So this is what they did for New Year's Day. They built the tabernacle. They built the tent of meeting. And just ten days later, according to the Jewish calendar, they're going to start Passover. So this is the, the, the construction is happening on day one of the year, and then day ten is when they have the second Passover. The first Passover was the real one, when the angel of death actually passed over and delivered the Israelites. The Israelites exited Egypt at that point. And then the second Passover they're going to celebrate now is going to be the first one that's a memorial, where they're remembering that. So this is the context. They're getting ready for this huge celebration that they're going to have in which they remember the Exodus. So this construction is happening one year after the Exodus from Egypt. And a lot has gone 
on in that period of time. So look with me at Exodus chapter 40. The Lord, or Yahweh, spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle, you shall set the altar of the burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar, and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. So here is a, an overview. God has already been giving specific instructions all along for all of these things that he's mentioning. And he's opening up by saying, okay, Moses, it's time to put this whole package together. It's time to arrange everything the way you saw it. When you were on the mount. And then God goes on with some kind of odd instructions. After you've built all this stuff, you need to do something else. Then you shall take the anointing oil, a particular oil that God gave them a recipe for, and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. That is, it may become set apart for me. It's not like you touch it with a special oil and it starts to glow. Rather, it's just, this is set apart for my service. You anoint it with a special oil, and it becomes set apart for me. So there's, there's a lot of oil flying around. I'm not really sure how Moses did it. I don't think he had a little oiler. Um, but he had some way of, of putting this sacred oil on all of these things. You shall anoint the altar of the burnt offering and all its utensils, and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him or make him holy that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations." So what's up with this anointing? It sounds sticky, messy. Um, let me give you a little excursus on anointing. Excursus, that's Latin for a rabbit trail. First of all, I have to remember that this oil that he's using is a, a special recipe. It's not a secret recipe. It's a special recipe. It's an exclusive recipe. In fact, in Exodus 30... It says that if you mix this oil, if you take this recipe that I'm giving you for my holy oil and you use it for anything else, you die. So this is an exclusive recipe on, on pain of death. This anointing, as it says in the text, signifies being set apart, especially for God's service. In kings, or I mean, rather, kings, priests, and prophets are all at various times anointed. So in 2 Samuel 2, 4, you have the anointing of David. The priests, as here, were anointed. And the prophets, at times, were also anointed. And that's recorded in 1 Kings 19, 16. They were all anointed. It was a special ceremony that identified this person as having been set apart for God's service. It was not accidental. You know, the, the idea of having some special formula for this oil, some special recipe, 
and that you have to put it on someone. There was never an, oops, you got anointed. No, it was intentional. God specifically wanted this person set apart for him. In fact, this is viewed as something that God did through human agents. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is talking about King Saul and a very interesting beginning to his reign. Then Samuel, this is 1 Samuel chapter 10, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not Yahweh anointed you leader over his inheritance? When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin, and they will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found, and now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He is asking, What shall I do about my son? Here we see that David or Samuel is talking to Saul and saying, You have been anointed. I'm pouring the oil, but it's God who is anointing you, and you are being set apart. And there's a special sign that you're going to encounter when you leave here to let you know that God is the one who has anointed you, who has set you apart. And in fact, David took this anointing very seriously. All the way through Saul's life, as he's trying to chase David to kill him, David is saying, I cannot touch the Lord's anointed. It made no difference that Saul was crazy, that Saul was out to kill David, that Saul had been rejected by Samuel. Samuel had said, the Lord has rejected you. It didn't make any difference. For David, Saul had been chosen by God. He's the Lord's anointed until he dies. And you can't touch him. In fact, he was smitten in his heart. It says David was smitten in his heart because he cut the robe of the Lord's anointed. Didn't even touch him physically, but just kind of humiliated him. So this is, um, this is significant. It was also associated with the Holy Spirit. Look again in, in 1 Samuel 10, verse 6, talking about Saul's anointing. This is not just a special um, ceremony. It's not something that God does just to put some oil on you. But in verse 6, 1 Samuel 10, 6, the Spirit of Yahweh will come upon you in power, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. And then again, in verse 9, as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. So there's a connection here between the anointing that comes on Saul and the empowerment by the Holy Spirit of Saul in order to do the work that God is giving to him. And then, interesting connection between the baptism of Jesus, the descent of the Holy Spirit. Look at Acts 10. Peter is talking about Jesus here, and he references the baptism of Jesus. This is right after um, Cornelius has been baptized by the Spirit as a sign to the Jews that had come with Peter that the Spirit is going out to the Gentiles now. And in that context, Jesus references the baptism of Jesus Christ in verse 37. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. And then it goes on to say that we have been anointed in a similar way. Look at 1 John chapter 2. Here John is talking specifically in the context of false teachers and how we have been anointed to be able to identify these false prophets. 
But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. And then drop down to 27, 1 John 2, 27. As for you, the anointing you received from Him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things, and as that anointing is real, not counterfeit, just as it is taught you, remain in Him. He's talking there about the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives in anointing us so that we can identify um, false teachers. And then finally, in 1 Peter 2, I said this was a bit of a rabbit trail, but I want you to understand the, the, the significance of this word as it um, goes on out through the, the text. 1 Peter 2, 5. You also, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices and acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then again in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praise of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. And you can almost hear in Peter's blessing upon the Christians, you can almost see in his mind this event that's happening right now before us, where Moses is anointing the priests of God. And he is, is showing that they are being set apart, they are being made sacred. And I think we also see from the other passages that now the Holy Spirit is coming into this sacred place and is setting apart all of these pieces of furniture, but also the priests who will be serving God in this sacred space. Starting in verse 16, back in Exodus chapter 40, 16 through 33 is 18 verses. And there's a phrase that appears eight times in those 18 verses. As the Lord commanded Moses. This is Moses is doing exactly what God told him to do. And my first thought was, yeah, it's great that Moses is being obedient. But the second thought that I had is what we're seeing here is what God wants done. This is God's idea. This is God's structure. This is the space that He wants created for His presence to be made known in the world. These are His instructions. So much so that in other places we saw where Moses was saying, remember the pattern that you saw. This is all the way through. It is God's instructions. This is not Moses' idea. Moses is only the one who enacts it. So in verse 16, This Moses did according to all that Yahweh commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Now, Moses had some help on this. But before we go in through the rest of this, I want you to get a sense of how big this space is. So I need two volunteers to come up and stand on these X's. Thank you. One more person. Right here. It won't be long, I promise. I just want you to get a sense of the, the space. As you look at the pictures, it'll be up on the screen. And I don't think you get a good... Uh, thank you. Right there. And then there are two X's about 15 feet back there. I need somebody to stand on those. You see, if, you're, if you get the door prize today, you're standing next to a red X. So just stand up so we can see how big the space is. Thank you. All right. And then got that one back there. And then there's one more in the back there. All right. Okay. So the people that are standing, they're marking off. This is just the, 
the tabernacle, okay? The small tent inside the big tent, all right? So these four people here are marking off what would be the Holy of Holies. That's about how big it was. And then the holy space from the veil all the way back to where those two gentlemen are standing, that's the holy place. Now the tent of meeting itself was 150 feet by 75 feet. If you don't know what feet are, you go over to the gymnasium, and the gymnasium is 60 feet wide. All right? So it's even wider than the gym, and the gym is about 100 feet, so it's about 150 feet, so another 50% bigger. This is a huge space, the whole tent of meeting. The whole complex is a big place, so you can be seated. Thank you. But remember, this is the, the center for, for, for law, for jurisprudence, for civil authority, but also for worship of Yahweh. So this is a big space. So Moses, in verse 18, Moses erected the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. So he is setting up this space right here. So this is the space, the sacred space where the Ark of the Testimony is. This is the, the mercy seat is going to be right here. The tablets of stone, the two stone records of the covenant that Yahweh has entered into with his people are placed right in here, both copies. There's one copy for Israel, one copy for Yahweh. They're both included right here because that is the basis of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and his people. The cherubim are covering the mercy seat right here. It would be where Moses would put the blood from the, or not Moses, but the high priest would put the blood. And then elsewhere, it is described, Yahweh is enthroned upon the cherubim. These form his throne. And so Yahweh is on top of the, in the cherubim. There's another cool passage. I forget where it's at. Either Exodus or Numbers. Where it says that Moses would go in to the space and he would hear God's voice. He wouldn't see anything, but he would hear God's voice. So this is where God's presence is. But this pillar of fire and pillar of cloud would go up above this. Um, and this space right here is a cube. It's 15 by 15 by 15, or 10 cubits by 10 cubits by 10 cubits. So it sticks up quite a bit higher than this screen around the outside. So the Israelites would be able to see this tent from the inside. And, of course, they'd be able to see the, the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. So this is the first part that Moses finishes. And he moves the Ark of the Covenant inside, and then he puts up this curtain. As we'll see later, this outside perimeter was not assembled until the very end. At least not in the text. It doesn't show up in the text until the very end. So it's likely that the Israelites were able to stand around the outside here and witness all of this being assembled. Um, because this wasn't put up until later. So they're watching this. This goes in. Inside is the only thing that's inside here. It's the only thing that's inside the, Ark, the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And then Moses puts up the curtain and closes off the Holy of Holies. He took the testimony and put it into the Ark. He put the poles in the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle, the smaller tent, and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. So now this is closed off. And it's probably the last time that the Israelites are really going to see it because every other time they travel, this, these curtains are used to cover this up. So this is not visible anymore to the Israelites. The Holy of Holies is now closed from sight, and Moses begins to create the holy space. 
So you have the Holy of Holies, the holiest place where God actually is enthroned. And then you have the holy space out here where only the priests come. So he begins to um, assemble this area out here. He put the table and the tent of meeting on the north side. This is right here. And then on the south side is the, um, the, the lamp. He arranges the bread on the table before Yahweh as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps for the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil. This is the, this is the altar of incense. So the priests were able to put incense on this and then the smoke would go in through the curtain um, through here. It was a place where they could offer a fragrant incense to Yahweh who is enthroned on the inside. Burned fragrant incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. So after he assembles all of the furniture in here, then he closes the front of this. He puts up the screen or the, the flap that covers the front of this. So now this is closed from view. Only the priests are going to be going into this space. Next, we move out to the larger area. So all of this is inside the tent here. And then he has two more pieces of furniture that are on the outside. He set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and offered on it the burnt offering and grain offering as Yahweh had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as Yahweh had commanded Moses. Now you remember, you know, this is, this is dirt out here. The priests were barefoot as they served, and so they would be offering sacrifices. And then, as they would go into here, before they would go into the holy place, they would wash at this laver. So they're, they're washing, anytime they go into the holy place, they're washing their hands and their feet. Whenever the priests would enter the holy place, they washed their hands, their bare feet. It was a ceremonial cleanness. This was not a bath time, all right? This was a ceremonial thing. This was a, an acknowledgement that you're coming into the presence of God. A reminder to the priests that they're coming into another space, a different space. It is a holy space. The whole area is set apart as sacred for God. But this particular place, inside the smaller tent, this is God's unique um, place where the priests are coming and they need to remember that this is a special place. He erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished his work. So the next thing he did is after he'd established all of this and got it all set up, then he closes it off from view. And again, this is a huge area. You, just, you go down to the gym and just look at the gymnasium, and it's not even as wide as this area is wide. It's a big space, and it's 50% longer. In fact, this room here is not even... Um, the whole length of it is not as wide as this, this space is. So it's a large space. A lot of people would be able to be in this space um, for the different things that they needed to do. So Moses puts up the outer curtain last, at least in the text it seems, and it's likely that the Israelites were able to watch um, what was going on and how everything was being set up inside this space. After they finish putting everything together, now God demonstrates his approval of what they have done. Moses, you have made everything the way I said to make it. You have followed the pattern. 
um, the, the men and women who have been working on all the gifts and all the things that have been being brought to the temple, all of this is now being approved by God. He demonstrates his approval in this way. Verse 34, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of Yahweh filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here, Yahweh comes down in a personal way. He wants to make his presence known in a a powerful way that is unique. It is different from what Moses has encountered before because Moses has spoken to Yahweh face to face before. Says Yahweh spoke to Moses unlike he spoke to any other man face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So Moses has been in the presence of God. In fact, Moses also asked to see his glory and, and God puts him in a special place and covers him with his hand and walks by because you can't see the face of God and he sees where God has been. So Moses has been very close, but at this point, God chooses to make his presence known in such a powerful way that not even Moses can go into this space. Sometimes we think about omnipresence of God kind of like it's Luke Skywalker's force. You know, that, that God is just equally present, emanating throughout everywhere. He's equally present everywhere. But this passage demands that we think of God as a person who can choose to make his presence known in one particular location more powerfully than anywhere else on the planet. In fact, if you look at all the passages that we go to to think about the omnipresence of God, it's always connected to God's people. I am with you even to the ends of the earth. If I go up to the highest heavens, you are there. If I go down to the lowest depths, you are there. Where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. God never talks about his presence as being something that's just kind of ubiquitous. It's everywhere you go. It's the idea that he chooses to make his presence with you. He's in a relationship with his covenant people. So here we see that God is choosing to make his presence um, palpable, visible, so that the people of God understand that God, in fact, is with them. You know, we would say, yes, God is present with, with non-believers. He, he keeps them breathing. He keeps their heart beating. He sustains them. He keeps them going. But Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. That means that God is more present today here than he is in the watt down the street. He's more present here, just as he chooses to make his presence known palpably, sensibly here on the temple, on the tabernacle. God has promised us that his presence is uniquely with us. He inhabits the praise of his people. This is a special day for the Israelites. It is the inauguration of God's special space with the Israelites. Throughout all their journeys... This is verse 36. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of Yahweh was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 
Are we moving today, Mom? I don't know. Let me check. Nope, the cloud's still there. We're not going anywhere. The cloud was always there. The pillar of fire was always there. That's how they knew whether or not they had to pack up. I mean, our family has moved quite a bit, but, you know, we don't check for the, the cloud. I mean, maybe that would be handy, but the Israelites had that there all the time. A manifestation, a physical manifestation of their God that I am here with you. They had that all the time in the wilderness as they're, as they're traveling. In fact, this was not something that was visible only to the Israelites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, Rahab could see this manifestation of the Israelites' God on the tabernacle. It provided them shade during the day, gave them warmth and light by night. Now, there's one more thing that's not in this text. How many of you have gone camping? Okay, a lot of you have gone camping, all right? You've got all your junk, and you're walking into the campground... What's the first thing that's going through your mind? <laughs> okay. How far is the bathroom? For the Israelites, that's wherever you have your trowel, okay? Where do you put the tent? I mean, that, my boys, you know, when they go camping, they're like trying to angle for the best spot. You know, you want shade, you don't want to be under the trees, whatever you want. You'll be close to the bathroom. So where do you put this? This is a huge thing. And there's nothing in the text that tells Moses where to put it. Just wherever. But this is where God's presence is going to be known. You would think the location would be significant. It's not there. It's not in the text. So look, um, if you look at uh, Exodus 33, not to re-preach somebody else's sermon, but this is important for understanding the location of this, this huge space. In uh, 33, verse 7, Now Moses used to take a tent, just some tent, not this particular one we're talking about now, but he used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of Yahweh would go out to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. And as Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while Yahweh spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. So in the past, Moses has been going outside the camp. And, and as he goes out, all the Israelites come out to the tent, opening of their tents, and they watch Moses as he goes out to meet with Yahweh. So this is, a, this is a private affair between Yahweh and Moses. Moses is going out to this tent of meeting, and the Israelites are worshiping Yahweh from afar as they see Moses and Yahweh conversing. In that same chapter, it says, this is the, the time of judgment. Yahweh says, I will not go with you. Back up in verse 33. 
Then Yahweh said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you, because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. So here, God is saying, you guys are problem, you're stiff-necked, you never obey, I can't go with you, because if I do, I will destroy you. Moses says, no. If you're not going with us, if the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, which is a symbol of your presence, is not going with us into the land of Canaan, then don't send us. And so Moses appeals to God, appeals to his name, his reputation. And in 14 through 17, this is 33, 14 to 17, then Yahweh replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? This is the the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, cloud is a manifestation of the approval of God on his people. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And Yahweh said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. So I think what happens is that they have this tent of meeting that Moses has been setting up. It's outside the camp. And I think it's likely that Moses set up this whole tent of meeting, the tabernacle, right here where he's already been meeting with God. That would be a natural conclusion. I'm not sure. But it's still outside the camp. There's still the Israelites over here, Moses and God over here. There's still a division there's still a, uh, almost a, a standoffishness. So let's fast forward to Numbers chapter 2, in which God finally gives a description of the arrangement of the tribal camps. Now, you don't have to read, you have to read chapter 2, chapter 3 to get all of this, but here is how it's set up. This is the tabernacle. This is a large, huge space, like a, probably like a, a, a football field, um, a soccer field for Americans. Big, big space right here in the middle. And then these, Moses and the priests are at the entrance. This will be the opening here to the tent of meeting. Moses and the priests are guarding the entrance here. And then Merari, Gershon, and Koath, these are all Levites. They set up around this area here. So they form a barrier a protective barrier between the rest of the tribes and Yahweh. And this is how God describes for them to set up the tent, to set up this camp. Is that I, not only am I going with you, but even though you're a stiff-necked and rebellious people, I, in my grace and mercy, as you follow the Mosaic law, as you offer the sacrifices, as you acknowledge your sinfulness, as you do all of this, I am going to come down. I'm going to be in the center of the camp. 
My presence, the pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud, is going to be right in the middle of these stiff-necked, rebellious Israelites. And I use this illustration in my classes to talk about the grace and mercy of God. That He is willing to come into the midst of these people and to be surrounded by Manasseh, Ephraim, Gad, Simeon, Reuben, Zebulun, and so on. All of these tribes are now around. They've been invited to come in. No more does Moses go out to Yahweh. But now Yahweh is in the center of the camp and they're all invited to be near and close. You see, there is no one who's further away from Yahweh than anyone else. They're all close. They've all been brought into the presence of God. So not only does God agree to go with them, but He comes into the center of the camp. So what's the connection of Exodus 40 to Jesus Christ? Very interesting. In John chapter 1, it says that Jesus, the Word, came and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tented. It's the same root word in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's the same word that's used here in John 1.14 to describe Jesus. God Himself comes down and tented. He tabernacled, I think the King James calls it, which is a great translation. Tabernacled in the midst of us. Even as we were still sinners, God sent forth His Son to die for us. To tent in the midst of us. So just as Yahweh is coming down in the midst of the Israelite camp, the Word, Jesus Christ, comes and dwells in the midst of us. His own received Him not. Another tie-in is that the veil, you can't see it here, but inside the Holy of Holies, the veil that was between the most holy place and the holy place, was torn in two at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's always interesting to note which events are recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is one of them. That this veil was torn. So that as Jesus came and tented in the midst of us, He was crucified. He bore the wrath of God. He enabled God to tear that veil apart. So that that veil that had hidden God's presence from Everyone, except for the high priest, once a year, he had been hidden. Now, that veil is ripped in two. It's torn apart because through Jesus Christ, we're now able to come into this presence. To enter into the presence of God with boldness because of the work that Jesus has done in removing the barrier between a holy God and His sinful people. This Passover lamb that they would bring into their homes just ten days later is a picture of Jesus Christ who was the Lamb who removed the sin of the world and appeased the wrath of God against sinners. Interestingly, we as believers have been made priests. In the passage I read from Peter, we have been anointed with the Holy Spirit to bring people before God, to show people our God, to tell them about Jesus Christ, the perfect High Priest, and to warn people of the wrath of God, which demands justice for violating His holiness. And I would add one more thing, that not only are we invited into the presence of God, but God dwells within us. Your bodies, each one of you individually, and us corporately as the body of Christ, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
We have the holy presence of God dwelling within us. Because of His grace and because of His mercy and because of the work of Jesus Christ, He is able to not just come into the center of the camp, but to come literally into the center of our being, who we are. God's presence, has, He has chosen. It's His choice to be in the midst of us. That's one of the things that Paul is just appalled by when he thinks about our sin and how can you make the Spirit of God a participant in your sin. Because the presence of God is in you and you should remember that God's holy presence is with you. And finally, all the way to the end, have to go all the way to the end, Revelation. It says, Emmanuel, God with us. That this, this idea of the presence of God coming down in a particular location to reveal Himself and coming in Jesus Christ to make it possible for us to have fellowship with God, for God to dwell within us. Not only that, but in the end, there'll be no more temple. The sunshine will be coming from the glory of God. There'll be no more night. And God will dwell with us forever. All of this is tied to God's choice to make His presence with us. Even though we are stiff-necked and rebellious people, He chooses to be present with us. And I praise Him for that. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.